In this episode, we talk about depression, safety, trauma, and suicidal ideation. If any of these resonate with you, please feel free to do what you need to to be safe. This is a trigger warning for this episode. Welcome back to the Cafe Corner Conversations on Mental Health Podcast from the 7pm Cafe Podcast Sister. Uh, We're so glad to have you here with us today. Today is going to be a special Pride episode where we're going to be talking with our first guest. I know, exciting. So sit back, grab a coffee or tea or your favorite drink, and uh, I hope you enjoy our conversation. So today is super exciting. I'm here with a wonderful friend of mine, Kaya Hawk, who I've known for an extremely long amount of time. Um, We've known each other since undergrad. And just a little bit about who she is. Uh, Kaya Hawk is a trans woman who uses she, her pronouns. Uh, She's also a drag queen in Chicago known as Hanky Punk, who is incredible, by the way. Definitely look it up. And a master of social work student at Loyola University. So hi, Kaya. Hi, good to see you. Good to see you too. I'm so excited to have you here. Yeah, me too. Kaya and I haven't seen each other in probably 15 years. No, I don't even know how long it's been, to be quite honest. I graduated in 2014, so probably at least that long. Yeah. Yeah, Seven years. Yeah. Wow. It's only been seven years. I think so, yeah. (gasps) Oh, that's insane. Uh, But super cool. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, Kaya and I met in undergrad where we went to IUP for theater. Kaya was an act is an actor and I was the tech person <laughs> yeah and uh, we kind of just like formed a bond over we, we lived together for a little while mm-hmm. yeah yeah in the theater house the three-story giant house with who knows how many people in it at any one time oh my gosh I know yeah we called it the theater house because everyone who lived there was a theater person and uh, for all of you who don't know and uh, Kaya and I lived on the top two floors uh, so that was where we kind of that and um, Liz Estrada mm-hmm. yep that was the big one <laughs> yeah that really uh, solidified our friendship right there it did yeah that's also around the time that you encouraged me to do drag too and I totally blew you off and told you like I can't do makeup I can't do it Mm -hmm. it's not gonna be for me and you were like okay well you've already done it multiple times you can clearly do it and here I am now doing it so you were right (laughs) I was right you were yes for sure but yeah no I thank you for like all of that I know we've had some really beautiful exchanges over the years and um yeah I just I remember watching you in school and in the shows that you were in and just being like oh yes guy would make a beautiful drag queen and um I'm so glad you actually started doing it and if you don't know who Hinky Punk is we will put links to social media in the description and you can follow and see the gorgeousness that is this art. So to get us started, I would really love to give our listeners a little bit more of your story. Today we are talking about pride and mental health within the LGBTQIA community. So I wanted to open the floor up to you to tell your story a little bit and yeah. Go ahead. Sure. Well, like Maggie said, I'm a trans woman. I've actually come out 
three times. Uh, the first time was as gay. The second time was as trans non-binary. And the third time was as a trans woman. So many coming out uh, events, many, many times doing that. Yeah, that's been an interesting ride. I will definitely say coming out that many times. I went to school for theater, like you said. After that, uh, I wound up doing drag I found auditions pretty anxiety inducing. Um, Mm -hmm. And I also wanted more control over my art. It got kind of frustrating for me after a while working with directors and feeling like the expectation was for me to be blank or something to be molded by someone else. And um, for my own journey as a trans person, I kind of already had enough people in society (laughs) trying to mold me into what they wanted me to be. Yeah. And it just really started to get frustrating and it felt really confined. I also was only being uh, considered, unless it was a drag role or a comedic role or something, I was only being considered for men's roles Mm -hmm. and it just didn't fit. Like if you, if you remember any of the roles where I played men in college, uh, where the expectation was that I was to be masculine in the role. I mean, it was painful to watch (laughs) and to to attempt to do like it just it just wasn't right it didn't work Mm -hmm. and it made me really uncomfortable yeah yeah and I did a lot of drag roles and I also did a lot of character acting roles Mm -hmm. I was playing caricatures a lot of the time and that I was good at and I could do that but when I had to play a real person who was a man and who the director wanted to be quote-unquote masculine whatever that means even is yeah (laughs) yeah when that was the expectation it just it was awful yeah so I was kind of wrestling with that the roles that I was being considered for in auditions even when I'd audition for something else it would always come back to okay well you have to fit in this box this exact type of role and I was like okay well that's not me that's not going to work I wanted more control over my art and I needed to explore my gender so drag kind of became the perfect mix of all of those things and I had done it quite a few times in college. So it just kind of felt like the natural progression. I kind of was lost for a while after school. Yeah. I did this, uh, what was that? Like Southeast Theater Conference, whatever, SETC audition thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, after school, I did that. I got this really crappy internship at this place that I will not name in a suburb of Detroit. Actually, I don't even think yeah. I remember what it was. So. Oh well, hey, that's well. that's fine. Usually, <laughs> those that's what those jobs are. <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. So they lied to us to get us to come there about what we'd be doing. Um, ah. They expected us to do tons of things I didn't have the skill to do, and didn't allow us to do things like act, which is why I was going. Yeah. Uh, they said we would have opportunities to audition for things and then didn't give us that opportunity. So then they were also really emotionally abusive. So I decided to quit that even though I signed a year contract because uh, mm. the pay was also really bad. So I was like, okay, well, there's no reason for me to stay. So mm. I left I moved around a bit. I lived with my parents in San Antonio for a little bit. I moved back to Pennsylvania for a little bit. I moved to Austin, Texas for a little bit. I started drag there for a hot second. My car broke down when I was living there and I was totally broke when I was in Austin. And I would walk to downtown during the day to try to find a job Mm -hmm. and couldn't find a job, walked back. And then I would get into like really horrible drag, like just the worst. 
I was so bad. I had no idea what I was doing. I was actually using my old theater makeup. Yes. The kit. Ben Nye <laughs> kits, man. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was using a bruise wheel as like every color on my face, like my eyeshadow, my lip, my blush or whatever I was using then. I don't mm-hmm. know. Do a whole face in that. had no idea what I was doing. I would get into like my $5 drag and then I would walk back to downtown oh at night gosh. to go to the clubs, which was actually really dangerous. A lot of that walk didn't have sidewalks. I was walking along the side of the highway. It was not advisable, but it was a bit of a dark time. And I was on my own and um, I was already walking there to look for jobs. So I figured what's another walk? I don't know, but it's quite dangerous. And I remember it's interesting to think back on it now, but I remember when I would walk, you know, at three in the morning back from downtown to where I lived in drag on the side of the highway. I just remember thinking like, what do I hope people, perceive me to be like do I hope that they see me as a cis woman do I hope that they see me as a drag queen like what what would keep me safest in this situation Mm. um I remember I bought this like coat at this thrift store that had this like accordion hood so I wore this like three dollar wig that was like a natural hair color you know Mm -hmm. and I pulled this air quotes there with the natural Mm -hmm. hair color by the way yeah exactly and then I like pull this big hood up over my face Mm -hmm. I think about that time a lot because if you think about safety and walking Mm -hmm. around at night I mean who of any of those options are safe like if I'm a cis woman that comes with certain dangers if I'm perceived as a trans woman that comes with certain dangers if I'm perceived as a drag queen that comes with certain dangers so like I don't I never came to a conclusion on that I just kind of hoped that I would be generally overlooked yeah it's it's kind of a mixed bag when getting into those things because there's like you said there's different levels of kind of the same danger in each space so right yeah so that's where I started drag in its official sense I had no idea what I was doing I was just practicing makeup with my Ben Nye makeup kit trying Mm -hmm. to figure stuff out I wasn't able to find a job there I wound up running out of money so my dad lent me enough money to get my car fixed enough to move. So I moved back to Indiana, Pennsylvania again. Um, And some of our friends were planning to move to Chicago. So I kind of, I called up some of my friends and some lived in New York and some uh, lived in Pittsburgh and some were thinking about moving to Chicago. And I kind of weighed my options. I knew my car was only going to make it like the trip and that was it. It It was pretty old. And when I got it, there were a lot of things wrong with it. So I wanted to go somewhere that had better public transportation because Austin, Texas, I liked it there, but their public transportation was really not very extensive. Um, And so I wound up choosing Chicago just because honestly, I wasn't really completely interested in living in New York. It's pretty cramped. Uh It's pretty dirty. All of the subways are underground. So I kind of, and it's really expensive. Um, yes. So yes, it is. I. I wound up deciding to move here to Chicago. Uh, I didn't really want to move to Pittsburgh. I grew up really close to Pittsburgh. Um, I just really wasn't interested in going back to that same area. So Chicago's a little more spread out. Some of the trains are above ground. It's cheaper than New York. And it had a big drag scene. I wanted to go somewhere that was a big drag scene because that was my plan. Definitely. So that's how I wound up here. Uh, I worked in Indiana waiting tables for like six months and saved up money and moved 
scoped. So nice. since then, I scoped out the drag scene here for about a year while practicing makeup on my own mm -hmm. before I started doing competitions and performing and everything. During my time living here while doing drag, I uh, was exploring my gender identity and I identified as non-binary at one point. Mm -hmm. um, and then that kind of shifted in a very, it was very painful for me to come to terms with my gender identity. It was difficult stripping back a lot of layers of shame and emotional abuse. And yeah. um, also like, I really didn't want to identify with the binary. It was very difficult. There's nothing wrong with being binary, a binary person, but the problem is that that is offered as the only option. Uh, yeah. But I kind of felt, I felt really weird about it. It made me very uncomfortable. Um, so I had to wrestle with that for a while. But I wound up telling myself, I, I just was really torn up about it. I wound up telling myself that, how about you just go forward for a month or two, tell yourself you're a trans woman. I decided to use she, her pronouns at that time, which not only trans women use or cis women use, you know, all types of people use all different pronouns. But yeah. I said, tell yourself that you're a trans woman and tell other people that you're a trans woman in your life. Try using she, her pronouns. And if it's not right, then it won't feel right. And I'll know that I need to shift back. Right. But I tried it and I immediately felt a huge weight lift off of me. It was, yeah, it was really liberating, but also very painful um, process. So yeah, that's where I've been. I've been here since then. I've struggled with my family a lot over all this period of time. My mom was very supportive, but she died when I was 17. Uh, so she's been gone for most of this. Right. And then this past year in July, during the pandemic, my parents disowned me for being trans amongst other things, like trying to educate them about their privilege, trying to educate them about race and gender and class and mm -hmm. all sorts of things that they didn't want to hear about. So yeah. it wound up becoming a requirement for them to have a relationship with them for me to make myself smaller and to conform and to be silent. And I refused to do that. Yeah. Um, I worked with them for many years uh, with a lot of different methods. Mm -hmm. I was very calculated about how I tried to educate my family, tried many different things over many years, and um, it just wound up not working. They just, they just said that, yeah, that I just had to shut up. And um, mm -hmm. my stepmom was particularly anti-trans and anti-queer and wouldn't admit it, wouldn't apologize for anything, even when I had witnesses, even when, even when my dad sometimes would uh, side with me on things. So that's been hard this last year, um, losing the rest of my family. But it's also nice. I get to focus my energy on other things. That took a massive amount of energy and time. So I've been devoting that time to drag and to grad school now, to my transition, um, to myself, to my partner who's non-binary, who's also going through their own form of transition. Right. So that's that's the broad strokes of my journey over the last seven years. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for for telling us that and being open mm -hmm. to it. I like I said before, you and I have talked on and off through this whole transition. So I I have a little bit of that knowledge. And um I will say that I am 
very glad to be on this journey with you. And hopefully, I think one of the people that has been with you this whole time. And I've, I mean, I've loved you since the day I met you. So like anything you do, I'm here for it. (laughs) (laughs) To be quite honest. Um, Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, I think your story is super powerful because not only you're talking about, you know, your own struggles, but in it, you're also talking about a lot of the things that are happening all the time to others in the Mm -hmm. same community. And they get, I think the stories are being told more now, um, but they're still, I think, not as often as it would be nice to hear them. I want to kind of move into talking about like the mental health piece of your journey and of kind of what you see within the communities that you're in, the drag community in Chicago or the other places that you've been, Texas, and also within the trans community as well. I don't have any direct (laughs) experience um, with those. So I would love to kind of talk about from your perspective in your story of the many coming outs that you've had and the many trials and tribulations that you've gone through. What has been kind of the consistent baseline of your mental health through all of this and like how have you found ways to kind of work through all of these things yeah yeah absolutely well for background I've struggled with mental health issues since I was 12 so for like 17 years that mainly started out with depression suicidal thoughts and later on anxiety like more severe anxiety that kind of developed over time as I was in college. Mm -hmm. But I had social anxiety since I was 12. Just being trans and going through puberty can be hard for some of us. Mm -hmm. Going through puberty was hard. Being told to conform was hard. All of that. Uh, I've dealt with depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts off and on this entire time up till today still happens. Yeah, it's difficult. And it's definitely played a large part in my drag career, for sure. It can be difficult being in giant crowds of wasted people. (laughs) You know, like, yeah, it's, it's hard for someone with social anxiety to be, you know, in essentially a mosh pit, (laughs) like a lot of the time. (laughs) Um, and you know, with my drag, I also wear a massive amount of garments. Like I have tons and tons of layers, so it can, it can be a bit overwhelming at times, but the art is worth it. The community is worth it. I also don't have that anxiety on stage, which is weird. Mm. (laughs) That's not where I'm anxious, like anxious in certain interpersonal situations or crowds or, you know, different triggers. But I find that a lot of people in the drag community in Chicago that I've interacted with have some form of mental illness. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of us struggle with that in our own ways and different types, different severities, different triggers. Um, all sorts. But yeah, I feel like most of us have dealt with it at some point, one way or another, which I mean is, yeah, the only other trans people that I really know are either through my partner or through like group therapy and stuff. So most of them are through the drag scene. So that's kind of connected in that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, from my own experience, which I don't know, 
and maybe it's a little shady, but the real truth for, for my experience is that not everyone in the drag scene has been super understanding about mental illness. Like in my experience, I've noticed that um, a lot of the time people are really vocal about destigmatizing mental health online, but then oftentimes when you're actually in person, face to face, with someone who's struggling with mental illness, a lot of people don't want to deal with it and they don't want to hear excuses and they, you have to be on point all the time. And you have to be, when someone asks you how you are, you have to be, I'm great. You know, yeah. like it just, you have to like put I've, on a show. You can't really like say mm-hmm. what you actually feel. Cause you know that at some point it won't be accepted. Yeah. And even right to your face, like they'll tell you, or even like even on the mic, even on the microphone at a gig, like, and I, there are a lot of different ways to think about this, but mm-hmm. the way I think about it is not popular a lot of the time. So, you know, when you're on the mic, your job is to hype up the crowd and right. that I definitely get, you know, you're doing a job that makes total sense. But um, I, part of my art is focusing on being vulnerable and being myself and destigmatizing mental health and being where I'm actually at emotionally in the moment, if I'm not on stage, I'm myself. And if that means I don't have a lot of energy, I don't have a lot of energy. And if that means that I'm really depressed or suicidal or anxious or whatever it is, that's how I am. And I think it's powerful to be where I'm at and still hold that space Mm -hmm. in the scene, you know, still work the gig, still talk to people. I, and I have no issue with anybody who does a character off of stage. I'm not saying that. That is also a, a lot of fun, honestly. Yeah. And is really a beautiful art form in and of itself. For but sure. just for me, my journey with it was that I wanted to put on a character on stage mm-hmm. and off stage, I wanted to be myself, even if I was still in drag. So not a lot of people like that. I was expected to have more energy to smile all the time to, you know, do these certain things. And it wasn't as accepted as I'd hoped to be overwhelmed by being in a huge crowd of people. I'm also just not someone who, who does a massive amount of small talk. Uh, I like talking about deep issues and, you know, like really getting into the meat of it. Mm -hmm. And when you're in a club, it's too loud to have conversations like that. So people expect me to (laughs) continuously have something to say when we're not actually talking about anything yeah and it's so loud I can't hear you and I'm in pain because I have a hundred things on my body and we're all a lot of us are drunk and it's mm-hmm. getting messy and I'm just like I don't have anything to say I wind up just sort of standing there yeah um yeah it's it's been a mixed bag there are definitely people who are very vocal about this as well mm-hmm. but i have definitely felt a disconnect between how outspoken and accepting people are about like accepting of people struggling with mental illness and right. loud about destigmatizing mental illness online right. versus in person telling you you have to conform bam you have to be on every time i ask you how you are you have to be great like that just yeah. So it's frustrating. Sounds, yeah, definitely. And it sounds like in a lot of, you know, what you're saying and what we're talking about is I'm hearing a lot of expectations from other people. And that's not only societal expectations of gender or the binary, but also expectations from 
family expectations from uh, the drag community expectations from just others in general. And when we have those expectations from others, there's also internal expectations that I also feel like, I know for me on my journey, that's kind of where I'm at. Like I'm realizing my internal expectations and starting to understand that they are not helpful at all anymore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I hear that with you too. Like there's a lot of kind of tearing down those walls and seeing the real, whatever it is, the real person, the real soul that is there and learning to embrace it all. And I think it can also be difficult when we're in a space that is technically uh, super accepting. And then we find that it's not like you're talking about. Mm Mm-hmm. Because then it goes back to that safety piece that you were talking about earlier. Absolutely. Yeah. That plays out in so many ways, like based on what is happening performatively and what is actually the case. Like, I mean, these spaces that are supposed to be safe, like, is it actually safe if you're Black? Is it actually safe if you're a person of color? Is it actually safe if you're not cis? Is it actually safe if... I don't know, for cis women even, like a lot of these bars are for cis white gay men only. That's it. Yeah. Like even if they pretend to not be only for those people, oftentimes they are. The proof is in the pudding a lot of the time. A lot of the actions that play out prove that that is the case. A lot of double standards, a lot of exploitation. Yeah, a lot of missed opportunities to actually work towards inclusion and equity, like actual equal pay, you know, actual Mm -hmm. safety. The amount of bars that I've worked in that, you know, a drag performer or a trans person or a queer person will get harassed in some way and the security won't even kick them out. I mean, it just, it happens constantly all the time. Um, it's really bad. Yeah, there are just not a, enough safety precautions put in place for especially the most marginalized members of the community. Right. Because when it comes down to it, it's a capitalist venture. Like it's it's all about it's a business. the bar making money. And almost all the time, the bars are managed by white cis gay men, period. Like almost every single person who's in upper management or who owns it mm-hmm. is all just white cis gay men. So- yeah. They care about the bottom line. Yeah. That's sometimes, sometimes, most of the time, I really dislike our economic system and the way that it has created an even harder time for everyone who's not that either cis white gay man, cis white male, uh, straight male, anything. It's just, it's so hard to be in any of those spaces, but then to like be in a place again, where you're supposed to be accepted and it's supposed to be the safe space to wonder if it actually is safe. That's Mm, That's heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. And for some people to know that it's not safe, you know, some people are past wondering and they're positive it's not safe. Mm -hmm. And that is messed up. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So in talking about this, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but like in your experience and have a couple of things I want to talk about still, but 
in your experience, like what is missing? What is missing here to create that space that is better or create more acceptance? What is it that is missing from your eyes? Well, first of all, I don't have all the answers. One. Second of all, I'm not necessarily the right person to decide all of these things. I do have some ideas and some things I've heard from others. But I mean, one thing is the management shouldn't be all cis white gay men. Mm -hmm. Like that one's obvious. Like the, the distribution of power in the community is just all focused on cis white gay men to begin with. Like that just needs to be torn down. The power needs to be redistributed. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, I know in our community, there have been very specific people who hold uh, a massive amount of power. Mm -hmm. And that's, they're all white, potentially of varying identities, but too many white people holding too much power, first of all. And that plays out in very real ways. It's not just about you know, okay, well, let's, let's retrain the white cis gay men, but have them still be in power. No, that's really not enough. They just need to give up their power. And they need Mm -hmm. to allow people who are not white cis gay men to take those positions and to decide how things should be changed and to be paid for that change. Because Mm -hmm. so many black and brown queer and trans people are doing all of this work for free when they were already being paid less, when they were already not being treated as well, not having the power that they have earned a million times over in the community. So the most important thing isn't for that white cis gay man and upper management to keep that job. Like you should probably just step down, honestly. And if you're not going to step down, then you need to be retrained. And that's like beyond the bare minimum. More people need to be willing to give up their power. More white people need to be willing to give up their power. Yeah. And then support that person mm-hmm. who gets that position. Right. Support that queer trans person of color who takes that position and do that work. So that's like number one, it's just redistrib- redistribution of power in general. Yeah. Uh, calling out a lot of the double standards and holding white performers accountable to the same standards that performers Mm. of color are. Yeah. And doing away with some of those expectations altogether. Right. So many double standards. Yeah. So many double standards. Another thing we need to do is stop calling the cops for a lot of the situations that happen in the bar. So many times the cops are called and trans and queer people of color pay the price, whether they were the ones that the cops were called in reference to or not. Like you're still calling the cops and bringing them to this place where all of these trans and queer people of color are, they're going to get targeted. Mm -hmm. They're going to get hurt. They're going to be killed. They're going to be wrongfully imprisoned. They're going to be harassed and they're going to be scared. Even if none of that happens at that time, it's scary. It's traumatic. And yeah, like people aren't kicked out who harass queer and trans people of color, Mm -hmm. but yet a queer or trans person of color is perceived to have maybe done something that probably wasn't even a big deal. If they even did it, bam, the cops are called. Cops are there in five minutes. Like it's ridiculous that some of some of the staff members at these bars don't understand that. It's not okay to do that. Right. Not. 
Yeah, it's, it's not. And thank you for bringing those up. And it's, I would like to point out, like, from all that you're saying is these are systemic issues, right? Like, it's not only, I'm going to say the patriarchy, but it like it kind of is. Um, but it's systematic in how we treat people, how we looked at other people, and the ability to handle situations in ways that are not dangerous for the people that are trying to get help. And there's so much work there that can definitely happen. And there are ways to do that. It's just finding the voices and the ways to actually do it and find right. that community outreach place and program to actually get that rolling. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I know that, you know, we talked a little bit when you first started thinking about going to school for social work. I would love to hear a little bit more. And if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about why you're choosing to go this way and kind of what the mode is for it right now. For sure. Well, I have a few different reasons. Some of them are logistical reasons. I've been recovering from a lot of drag injuries over the last year. I was on bed rest for the first two months of the pandemic and I've been re-injuring myself by doing everyday things multiple times since then. So I actually had already injured myself starting in like November of 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, I started having some pretty serious injuries, but my career was going really well at the time. I was working a lot. I was getting high profile gigs. I had started two jobs at two drag dinner theaters, uh, which those were the sort of drag related day jobs that I had been looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, and that I felt like, okay, great, I made it. This is going to make my drag career sustainable. So I was just working through the injuries because there wasn't an option. That was my job. That's what I needed to do. So I worked through those injuries until February. And then in March, the pandemic hit and my injuries got a lot worse at that time. So it like really lined up with the pandemic hitting right in March. Like I could not stand up. I couldn't get out of bed. Luckily, one of my friends in the scene recommended a trans friendly chiropractor who's been really helpful. But yeah, I've just been messed up and I've gotten injured a few times over the years doing drag. Yeah, uh, actually, the the injury that I got when we were doing Lysistrata when you had to shove my foot into the heel. Yep. Oh, that's, that's so painful. Yeah, that's still a thing. Like my foot's just permanently messed up. Oh, um, no. That never went away. So that's kind of contributed to some things too. Uh, yeah. Just, you know, injury spiral, you injure your foot, it changes the way that you walk. And then on top of that, I'm wearing heels as my job. I'm doing these high kicks I have no business doing. <laughs> you know, my pelvis is just like a disaster. So the pandemic, since I was on bed rest, you know, a lot of drag performers during the pandemic, you kind of have a choice where you either double down and work on your art in ways you never have before and really just like catapult off of there. I mean, so many of my friends, their careers are going better than ever nice. uh, because they had all of this extra time to be at home and to work on new projects. And um, it was really difficult for a lot of people to make enough money to scrape by at the beginning. Right. Um, and it still is now, like money is still difficult. But it just allowed people to do drag in, in ways they'd never done it before. Doing uh, music videos, doing online drag shows. I mean, you can have shows with people 
all over the world and they don't have to go anywhere. So I ended up not having the option of keeping that as my primary source of income during the pandemic because of my injuries. So once I was healed enough to get a job, I went and got a job. Um, I worked at PetSmart in their boarding section. I've done it before. It's a pretty chill job. And because it's in their boarding section, I didn't have to interact with customers. So it was a lot safer during the pandemic. I was mainly just interacting with five or six other people and a bunch of dogs. So, Hey, yeah, it was pretty nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a really chill job, but yeah. So during summer 2020, I just thought I'd been considering going to school for social work for a while. Mm -hmm. I had a really influential social worker in my life was my therapist for three years. They helped me work through trying to educate my family. They were there as a lot of the conflict went down with my family, saw me through a lot of bad things. I've gone to a lot of therapy in my life. I've been in and out of therapy for like 12 years. So I had a lot of things I was curious about, about therapy. I had a lot of opinions Mm -hmm. and that therapist, we just had great conversations. We talked about therapy as an institution, about different theories and all sorts of things. So I kind of became interested in social work from a therapy perspective, even though we spoke about how broad the field was, that was mainly my own, that was my only personal exposure to social work was through a therapy perspective. Um, So they ended up moving away a couple years ago, Mm -hmm. which was hard. Um, But that relationship is what made me think at some point I wanted to go to school for social work. And because the pandemic hit, and then I had all those injuries, I just thought, you know, my drag career was going really well, but my body's just not really allowing for this anymore. Mm -hmm. That was really hard for me to come to terms with. And I still do drag. I've done a few music videos. I love doing music videos. I will likely continue doing those probably more so than in-person gigs. Right. I have even more control over my art, which I love. I am exactly. a, a little bit of a control freak, just a little bit. What? Um, no, <laughs> never. Just a little bit. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, then you have control over all of the tech of it too. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have control over that stuff in person. I also get to reshoot it if I mess it up. You know, I get to do it exactly how I want, you know, like within time constraints. And I'm still learning a ton of new skills and could always use better programs and tools and stuff. But I, I do like it. So I kind of decided, let me take a step back from doing drag for money, Mm -hmm. go to school and do drag on the side. I'm primarily using my drag now to raise money for different organizations too, because I don't have the ability to donate all the time. So I thought, well, I have student loans. My partner has a full-time job. We can support ourselves and then it's not always a lot of money that I'm getting from my drag now, but it's something. So yeah. that's been my goal with that. I just decided it was time to apply to school because I had the downtime. You know, I had to be at home all the time other than doing my job. So I figured I might as well do it, especially because that was only a part-time job and there wasn't really room for advancement. Right. It's still a minimum wage job, even though it's chill and safe during the pandemic. There isn't really a future in that for me. So right. I applied to school 
Luckily I got in. Honestly, <laughs> they probably let anyone in who's willing to pay because it's a for-profit institution. Yeah. Let's be honest. I felt but, the same way about going in because, you know, I have a theater background. What mm-hmm. are they going to do with the, me? But yeah, yeah, it was good though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing now. I just finished my first semester uh, like a week ago. Nice. So mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exciting. I'm glad that you have found something that resonates with you on a bunch of levels. And you had some, a person that was so influential to you that kind of shaped not only how you think, but also like helping you find another space and another area to kind of go into and explore. That's so awesome. I love hearing about the the people that we interact with that inspire us to do something different or have those conversations that we've always wanted to have, but have never found anybody to have them with. So that's really amazing that you've had that person to do that with. Yeah, absolutely. And like, also, as most people probably know, drag does not offer health insurance. Drag does not Uh offer 401k. Mm -mm. It's really unstable income. So all these injuries just made me realize, you know, I thought I could kind of capitalize on my youth and go without health insurance. But I'm like, if I keep getting injured like this, I mean, I need health insurance and I need more stable income. That was another reason I decided to do it. Why social work more specifically? Mm -hmm. For, I mean, another reason is that I'm a trans woman who struggled with mental illness. How many jobs can you go into and be open about that and get to hold people accountable for making space for you like this? You don't get to discriminate against me for those things and get away with it. You know, like, like they do at a minimum wage job, At a minimum wage job, you're expendable. I have to shut up you know, all of the time about most things, if you want to keep your job. So this was an industry where I could put my skills to good use. And I could also have the ability to hold people accountable to make space for me. And, you know, it's not a perfect industry, but it's better than scooping dog poop for a living. You know, it's like, (laughs) I'm at least doing something better than that, you know, even if it is, you know, we're still fighting within that system as well to make change. It is very flawed as well, but at least it's something, at least Mm -hmm. it's a way to work within a system to change it and to at least help other people cope with the system as we all attempt to change it. Right. So it seemed like a it's the best option I can think of. I don't, I can't think of anything else I would go back to school for other than art or this. And I'm definitely not going to spend more money on an art education that will not make me any money. So (laughs) no, that makes complete sense. Yeah. Just go into debt for this. (laughs) Yeah. Oh no, I feel you. I am so far into debt for this, but I, I, love that reasoning and yeah this is a flawed system in social work but it is one of is one of the fields that questions everything and I think that that is beautiful and also necessary and the more people we have having the ability to question the system to make space for people like you like me like everybody else who's marginalized is Mm -hmm. so important and I'm so glad that you decided to go this way and join me um because <laughs> i think it's it's kind of beautiful the fact that social workers and themselves have 
really transformed and continuing to, but it's going to take a while, just like everything else. Mm -hmm. It's going to take a while. Yeah. For anyone out there who is struggling, for anyone out there who is having difficulties, know that you have people out there who either have been there or have a similar story and you have love even from people you don't know i put it out there all the time but i personally love everyone even if you're a bad person you deserve a little bit of love i might not talk to you but (laughs) you know you deserve love and respect in the way that i'm going to treat you like a human because we're all human beings and everyone has a voice and deserves to be heard. And that's one of the reasons why I agreed to do this podcast, because I think having this space to talk about the difficult journeys and the difficult things is necessary. Yeah, for sure. Especially right now. Mm-hmm. So just to give a little bit of context to, you know, in the LGBTQ communities with mental health, you know, Kaya said earlier that a lot of the people that she's been around, all the people that I've been around in the theater community, there are so many people who have mental health issues. And, you know, of the 4.5% of the population that identifies as LGBTQIA+, um, of those, at least 39% have reported to having a mental health illness or uh, difficulty in the past year. These are from Mental Health America, which is a really great space. But that number, that percentage is 5.8 million people. That's more than, than the entire population of Kentucky. There are so many things that go into those struggles. And because the of the history that goes with being different than being a cis, straight, white person is insane. There have been wars. There have been concentration camps. There's been historic systemic trauma in that space, as well as when you have the intersectionality of also being Black or a person of color, Indigenous, any of those things, you bring that in and it just makes it even more complicated. And it's so, it's not a one size fits all world that we live in. And if you are struggling and you're looking for people to help you, there are some places you can look for help and assistance. If you are depressed or feeling suicidal, you can always call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. They have people on there who are trained in all the different spaces and they can help you. There's also the Trevor Project, which has some really great tools. The Human Rights Campaign, they have some great community organizations and outreaches that happen throughout the world uh, and throughout the country. And there are other programs out there too. Look in your communities for different spaces that hold space for people in the LGBTQ community. And if you don't have one, maybe look for one and find a way to bring it in or find some people in the community that are like me or like Kaya and, you know, work with them to find a way to create a space for those people. There are also some church communities that are accepting of everyone and everything. They may be hard to find, but they are out there and have some pretty great programs around the world. Is there anything else that you would like 
to say, my darling? You can choose whether to put this in or not, because this is pretty out of order. But I was just thinking about something I left out in regards to changes that need to be made in the clubs. Most, if not all of them, at least here in Chicago, are really not accessible to people with disabilities, particularly with movement disabilities, if they need any sort of walking aids or wheelchairs or anything like that, most, if not all of the space is inaccessible to them, especially a lot of the bathrooms. Many people with walking aids or wheelchairs wouldn't even be able to get to the bathroom, much less use it. The dressing rooms, if they want to do drag, usually are in a very small basement where you have to go downstairs. Many people using walking aids or in wheelchairs couldn't go down those stairs. Yeah, I know that is really difficult for some queer and trans people who live with disabilities, who want to do drag in the clubs, not just online, Mm -hmm. who want to participate and be able to do that. Even if they can get into like the dance floor, they have nowhere to change. They have nowhere to get ready. So how are they gonna do a booking? You know, they can't actually be a part of that. And they can't, you know, so much of networking goes on in those basements, you know, and that is part of the business. So Mm -hmm. I also know that's very difficult. And especially in the city, because so many of the bars are so small. Yeah, there just needs to be investment in some more inclusive spaces. And for some of the high profile people who are in power who host these shows to seek out locations that are accessible Mm -hmm. and to take the popular shows there. That's another thing I've heard some people saying online would be helpful. So wanted to throw that in something I was thinking about. I appreciate that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That is uh, that is a part of every community that seems to be kind of an afterthought uh, because there are so many people who are able-bodied in those spaces that yep. not recognizing that there are people who want to do this too, who might not be able to walk upstairs. Right. Yeah. Yep. So thanks for bringing that up. Appreciate it. Sure. But thank you so much for being yeah. here, for doing this with me and for sharing your story. I really, I love you. I adore you. And I'm always here for you, no matter what. Thank you. I love you too. I appreciate you taking the time to check in with me over all of this time. It's been really nice. What a fantastic conversation with our first guest, And I want to say thank you to Kaya for sharing her story with us and for giving us some insight into her experience and the experience of the LGBTQIA community that she sees. I hope that you have gotten some love, kindness, and empathy from this conversation. Thank you for being with us today in the Cafe Corner. The next episode, Lucy and I will be speaking on Father's Day and grief, so we hope to see you again. Remember to be kind, be brave, and be open. Much love to you. Mm -hmm.